So today we're going to continue with the uh, book of Jonah, chapter 2. This time we're going to read the last verse of chapter 2. And um, as I was going through this particular chapter, I was thinking about the need for the church today in light of the message of the gospel. And we live in very challenging times. We live in very unusual times. Um, there is such a confusion uh, with regards to the woke ideology, with gender fluidity, with sexuality, and uh, mores that were accepted in the past and no longer accepted today. And the church stands as a beacon, if you would, in this very dark environment. And, and shining the same light, the same message. But it's not a message that is welcomed, especially by the West. When I say the West, I mean the free world, if you would. The, uh, there are parts of this world that where the message of the gospel is a little more accepted. But generally speaking, the free world, the Western world, refuses this wonderful message. Mores that once were accepted are no longer accepted, they're ridiculed, they're made fun of, and we live in a very unusual time. And we are called to be bold today. And boldness is not something that comes naturally to us, especially with something that is criticized and is seen as antiquated and no longer relevant. So we need God's grace. And I pray that today's message will show us the need for greater boldness. Now, I've entitled this message, Jonah is given a second chance. And the reason why I'm saying Jonah is given a second chance is obvious because God speaks to him once again. So please turn to your Bibles. We're going to be reading the last verse of Jonah chapter 2, which is verse 10, and then Jonah 3 from verse 1 to 4. And as I've saying, been saying rather in the past weeks as we've been dealing with this book, if you haven't gone through the entire book, I would encourage you to do it. It's a remarkable book with so much truths, so many truths rather, and um, just hidden, these nuggets of gold are everywhere throughout this book, and so I would encourage you to go through it several times if you can. So let, please stand with me as we read Jonah chapter 2, and we'll read verse 10 first, and then we'll go to chapter 3 and read from verse 1 to verse 4. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. And so Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk. And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Thank you, Lord, for this precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
In Scripture, we have several instances where individuals who failed miserably were given a second chance, another opportunity to serve, if you would. And David is notorious for his sin with Bathsheba, but there would have been another ending had God not given him mercy and a second chance. In addition to David, we have the example of Peter, who denied the Lord three times, and in all likelihood, felt like a failure for his denial. And yet, Christ mercifully restores Peter and gives him another chance to serve as an apostle when he told him these words, feed my sheep. And then we have John Mark. Paul refused John Mark on a second missionary trip because on the first missionary trip, John Mark was unreliable. He abandoned both, both Paul and Barnabas, went back home. Some say because he was mama's boy, he was too young, uh, the trip was uh, too difficult, whatever the case. Paul did not want to bring him along the second time. He said no. Yet Barnabas stuck with Bar uh, John Mark, and then later we see that God used John to write one of the Gospels, the four Gospels. Of course, we know the Synoptic Gospels plus John's. And one of them is, was written by Mark. In fact, scholars say that was the first gospel to have been written. These and others in the, the Bible show us that God does not give up on us when we fail or when we mess up. Now Jonah had failed. He messed up. He messed up badly. But God showed him mercy by bringing him through a series of painful events, which ultimately were used of God to bring about repentance in the life of Jonah. In Romans chapter 2, Paul writes these words, which helps us see why God gives us a second chance. Romans 2.4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? How is God's kindness manifested here? Notice, it's seen in restraint and patience. Why restraint? Because God should give us punishment, but he holds back. God is patient. And these are founded, these two ways of God are grounded or founded in his patience. And his patience is the fruit of his kindness. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Now, if we did not experience God's kindness, we would not be here. We would not be repentant. How many, how many times I've repented of sins and failures in my life. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. If God was severe and only severe, and he has every reason to be severe, then we would not be repentant. Demons can't repent. They cannot repent because they're not afforded repentance. God has no patience with demons. There is no restraint with God. God limits their activity, but there is no kindness towards demons, demons cannot repent. We repent because God moves on our hearts and that leads us to repentance. He moves in our circumstances. He humbles us. He breaks us. He brings us with our backs against the wall. And finally, because of his mercy, we repent. God did this with Jonah. And though there were consequences to his rebellion, God's kindness was real and resulted in Jonah's repentance. And so today we're going to finally see Jonah carrying out 
God's will, the mission given to him by God. First, in verse 10 of chapter 2, we see Jonah ejected. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, we will never know the experience that Jonah must have felt in being ejected from uh, the sea creature, Jonah being spewed out onto dry land. Now, were there others there? Were there people that witnessed this sight of seeing this human coming out of the sea creature's mouth and being thrown onto dry land? What was his color? What did he smell of? How did he look for a few days? He must have been bleached. You know, if you stay in the sun, you're tanned. You stay in juices, you're not the same. Now, under normal circumstances, this would not only have been terrifying, but a sight to behold. And in scriptures, we have several instances where God commands his creation to do his bidding, unusual uh, bidding. All of God's creatures obey God. For his discouraged servant Elijah, fleeing from Jezebel, God commands ravens. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a raven up close. They're not pretty birds, like, like crows. Uh, I've seen it. They're l- large, black birds. And, and uh, God commanded this unclean bird, because a raven was an unclean bird for a Jew, and says, I've commanded the ravens to take care of you, God says to Elijah, as he's fleeing from Jezebel, the queen that wanted him dead. And you imagine, you know, this raven coming, an unclean bird, and bringing him bread every morning. He says, you know, how did he feel? But he was hungry. And God commanded the ravens. You know, and that's basically... And then in another instance, we see, for example, locusts swarming all of Egypt, except Goshen, where the Israelites were living. And it was, there was such a swarm. By the way, there was another swarm of locusts in Egypt not too long ago. And there was, there was such a swarm that the sun's rays could not be seen under the swarm of locusts that was covering the land. Um, then we have, for example, the Hebrews that were in the wilderness. They were complaining. And what does God do? He sends locusts all around the camp, right? All around the camp, locusts falling by the thousands on the uh, Hebrews. This, in other instances, um, Peter, you know, he, he's speaking to the Lord, and the Lord tells him to go fish, and the fish that he would take out would have a coin in its mouth. And that coin would allow him to pay the temple tax as well as the Lord's temple tax. In Psalm 148, verses 8 to 10, it says, Praise the Lord from the earth. Sea monsters and all ocean depths, fire, hail, snow, clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. They obey. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, animals and all cattle, crawling things and winged fowl, all fulfilling his word. All of God's creation does God's bidding. All of God's creation on earth except for one man. So it should not surprise us 
that the sea creature belched out Jonah, he was obedient, or it, shall we say, was obedient. What should surprise us is how the sea creature, obedient to God, was able to keep within its belly a disobedient servant. It would be like us keeping something within, within us that would cause us stomach ache and pain. And the sea creature finally was relieved to rid himself of this alien object within him. Jonah's disobedience was a disturbance in the belly of the obedient sea creature. Similarly, our disobedience disturbs the order of God on this globe that moves in obedience to God. All creatures, all of nature moves in harmony and in obedience with God. And this is the mystery. that God allows disobedient creatures, men and women, humanity, rebellious to his will to exist on a globe that was created by him and is sustained by him and moves in obedience to him, to his every command. Romans 8, 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Notice, it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the creation of God. Listen to this verse. For we know that the whole creation groans. It groans. So when we see storms, and when we see things that are out of whack, it's nature groaning. It's not groaning because we are, uh, I don't know, fracking or because of fossil fuel. It groans because we are disobedient to the Creator. Now, environmentalists would have us believe that this globe is on fire and that we're doing it harm. That is just a very small part of the story. The, the real story is that we are causing creation to groan and suffer because of disobedience that we've brought into the picture, we meaning mankind. The pains of childbirth together until now. So it's waiting. It's waiting for the day when it'll be free from the curse that God brought upon creation because of our disobedience. Creation never disobeyed. No animal disobeys. We disobeyed. And therefore the groaning and the pain that it suffers is because of our disobedience. At the end, when we stand before a holy God, the creator, we will see how much our rebellion has inflicted pain on an obedient creation. And how much it had to endure while waiting for the day when the creator would free it from the tyranny of the curse. Now we see Jonah ejected, and now let's look at Jonah employed. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So in these words, we see God commanding his servant anew. The first time around, 
Jonah rebelled. Jonah said, absolutely not. What was required in the life of Jonah was a work of grace so that Jonah's heart could be softened and had become hard. And that could happen to God's children. We could become hardened towards God's word. Our ears could become blocked and we could slumber and become lethargic spiritually. We need an awakening. We need to be touched. We need a second touch. Only God could do that. Only God can revive us. Of course, repentance is needed for that to happen. It's a second work of grace, if you would. It's God moving in the hearts of his children to awaken them to obedience and to surrender and to loving God once again. In the Gospels, we have the unusual story of a man who was blind, and he's brought to Jesus. The story is found in the Gospel of Mark. It's only Mark that narrates this instance. It's from uh, verse 22 we read, Mark 8, and they, meaning the disciples with Jesus, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a man who was blind to Jesus and begged him to touch him. Taking the man who was blind by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting in his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. And then again, he, meaning Jesus, laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you will never read of another instance where Jesus healed someone in two stages. This doesn't exist. His miracles were always instantaneous. They were always complete with perfect outcome. People would say in his day, he does everything well. So I'm sure you've read this parable, or this story rather, and um, you must have asked yourself the same question I have many times. Why did Jesus not heal him completely instantaneously the first time? I've had uh, cases where people would turn to uh, so-called faith healers and say, look, this man has been healed. Look, he says to this person, your cancer will go. Go to the doctors, and in time, you will see that it will disappear. And of course, in many cases, that isn't, doesn't happen, perhaps in most cases. Or, don't worry, you will walk again, and so forth. Using this miracle as an excuse for delayed healing. <laughs> There's no such thing. Delayed healing. Jesus never did this. He only does it in this instance. And there's a reason why he did it in this instance. If you read the verses leading to that miracle, you will discover that there were 4,000 men, it says, who were fed by the Lord with only a few loaves and a few fish. And not long afterwards, we see the disciples arguing amongst themselves because they had forgotten lunch. They forgot lunch, and they argue in the presence of Jesus, and you should have brought it, and you should have brought it, and anyways, you know how the story goes. And so Jesus rebukes them. In verse 17, same chapter, we read, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He says, what, what is wrong with you? That's what Jesus is saying. Why are you doing this? Do you not yet comprehend or understand? Do you still have your heart hardened? Now notice the words he uses. Having eyes, you do not see. Having ears, you do not hear. Do you not remember? He goes, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets 
full of broken pieces you picked up? They answered, 12. He says, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? You're arguing about this? Have you ever starved with me? Don't worry. There's something else I am trying to show you. What is Jesus doing? He is patiently revealing to his disciples who he is. The healing of the blind man in two stages was purposely done. It mirrored God's ways with his people Israel. Israel had received so many blessings. The temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, and the festivals, and the land, and all that that accompanied that. They were chosen as his people. But they, having eyes, did not see. Their hearts were hardened. God gave them so much, he touched them the first time. But they saw poorly. Men, like walking light trees. This person was nothing more than a reflection of what would have happened to Israel. In comes the second miracle. Jesus Christ himself. He came to give sight to the blind, not simply physical sight, because everyone he healed in some way eventually died. He came to give spiritual sight. He came to make them see. He made them see that they were sinners in need of grace and to receive Christ's righteousness. John writing about Jesus and the law in comparison says, for law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law never allowed the Israelites to see. The law just caused them to see one thing. They're sinners, they're sinners, they're sinners. We can't, we can't, we can't. We fall short, we fall short, we fall short. This is awful, this is awful. I'm miserable. They never saw beyond that. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law could not produce sight, but the second Adam, the second touch from Jesus brought the healing for all those who needed change and would surrender to the truth of the gospel. Jonah needed a second touch. That second touch healed him. You may be very religious today. You may say, I'm a good person. I follow the best that I can, the the Bible and the law. But you haven't received that second touch. You do not see yourself as a sinner deserving judgment. You do not see Christ as the only Savior. You see yourself as a person that could save himself or herself. You need a second touch. Because the truth is, when we have that kind of ideology about ourselves, ideas rather, we are self-righteous and and we need mercy from the God. Jonah received that mercy. And then Jonah was able to hear God's voice arise, go to Nineveh, and proclaim to it the word that I gave you. Now let's look at Jonah engaged, verses, verse 3 rather. And so Jonah got up, he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, and now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk. So now we have a different Jonah, a different prophet altogether. One that is fully compliant with the will of God. Jonah now understands that he is God's servant. He deserved punishment. 
He deserved death. God had spared him for his disobedience. God was merciful. After being vomited out, Jonah gets up, makes his way to Nineveh, the city he despised the most because its people, who were Assyrians, had invaded Israel multiple times. But what a transformation. I remember uh, years ago, many years ago, um, this was while I was still, this is before I went into the ministry, I had cheated a uh, merchant. Uh, this was a business that my father had, and I had cheated a merchant because, no, not, by not paying him, and he was due an amount. And uh, he had forgotten about it, and I knew about it, and I kept it hush-hush. I remember uh, I was considering <clears throat> going into the ministry, and I was praying, and this merchant just appears, uh, not in a vision, <laughs> just his memory comes before me. And I'm thinking about him, and as though the Lord says, John, I want you to make this right. I want you to make it right. Otherwise, nothing is going to happen from here on in. So I, I was embarrassed. I mean, I, I always I said, you know what I'll do? I'll just put the money in an envelope and just mail it to him. You know, and he will never know. He'll get his money, but it just didn't seem right. So I huffed and I puffed and I, and I did this for days. I didn't know what to do. And <laughs> I was young. I was maybe 18. And, and I walked around the house and I, I was just troubled. I said, I'll forget it. I'm just going to bring him the money and that's it. I was just tired of it all. So I walked up to the merchant and I, uh, I said, look, there was a bill, an outstanding bill. You forgot about it. I haven't. I owe you this much. Here's the money. He took the money. He looked at him. He goes, okay. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, it's one of those bewildered looks like, had I been in your shoes, I would never have brought this. Why are you bringing this to me? That's the kind of look he had. Anyways, I didn't expect him to praise him. I was just happy that I did it. When I walked out of that store, I was just elated. Elated because this wonderful sense of I'd obeyed the Lord and he had given me grace to do it just, just, just filled my heart. Jonah up to now had been disobedient, but now he's willing to obey the Lord. And there was this sense of thank you. Even though these people are vile and brutal, and they are the ones who cause pain to my people Israel, I'm still willing to go. I will go and share. What a transformation. That's what happens when God's word penetrates the heart. It changes your heart. It changes your perspective. It changes your words. It changes your thoughts. It changes everything. It impacts, impacts. That's powerful. Now, what causes anyone to be engaged in God's will, doing God's work? Or maybe should I rephrase the question? What prevents us from being engaged in God's work? What prevents us from obeying him? God's people are called to serve, do his bidding, obey. But there are many who do not obey, who do not do his will. Many fail to serve him, many of his children. Why? I think Isaiah helps us here. Isaiah was a prophet, and in chapter 6, he has a unique experience. He's in the temple. He's mourning the death of the favorite, their favorite king. His name was Uzzah. I, sorry, Uzziah. And as he's there praying in the temple and mourning with all of Judah, the Lord gives him a vision. It's the king of kings, seated on his throne. 
his train comes down and fills the temple. And he's amazed with his vision. And while he's amazed, hearing the seraphs praising him, he senses his sinfulness. Now, think about it. He's a prophet. For the first five chapters, he's been preaching. But now in the presence of a holy God, he senses that he is sinful, sinful, sinful. God is holy, holy, holy. And he goes, woe is me. I am undone. I'm finished. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Unclean lips, Isaiah? Maybe he had gossip. Maybe maligned. Maybe judged. Whatever. He had said things out of turn. But he saw himself not in comparison to others, but he saw himself in the light of God's holiness. So Isaiah's story shows us that it is real, possibly, really, uh, possibly, the, the fact that we can be serving God, but half-heartedly. Uh, preaching, but not as we ought to be, because there's still stuff in our hearts. And that's when Isaiah 65, when he says that I'm ruined, I'm finished. I'm a man of unclean lips. He acknowledges his sinfulness. Not the sinfulness of the people of God that he'd been preaching about for the previous five chapters, but his sinfulness. And at that very moment, while Isaiah is overwhelmed, an angel comes down and takes a coal from the altar. And in Isaiah 6, 7, he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Atonement is made for your sin. Isaiah was already a prophet, but now he's freed from that sin that was cumbersome, that was hindering him, and he hears God's word being repeated. And what was God repeating over and over? Verse 8, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? You see, Isaiah was not hearing those words prior to this. His heart had a crust. His ears were maybe blocked. He was indifferent to that message. He was looking at God's people and preaching, but he couldn't see that there was something wrong with his heart. But now in the sight, the sight of the holy God, he saw himself for who he truly was, and he repents. The prophet now could hear God's voice. And he says, send me. That's what happened to Jonah. Send me. I'm going to go. I'll go. I'll preach. His heart and heart now softened. Jonah is willing to go and to speak on God's behalf. Verse 4, we see Jonah emboldened. And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I want us to dwell on this verse just a little while, more than usual. And then hopefully next week I can elaborate a bit more. But look at this verse. It's very interesting. If you look closely at the message that Jonah preached, it was atypical. It wasn't your usual message preached by a prophet. The message was not one of hope. It was one of doom. Look at what it says. 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all it says. Jonah's message afforded no Glimmer of hope. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The Ninevites were doomed to destruction. God was going to rain upon them. Either fire was going to open the earth and swallow them. Something was going to happen. 
Now, this is very uncharacteristic of the messages preached by prophets. For example, if you were to contrast Jonah's message with John the Baptist, you would see a difference. For example, look at John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Here's John preaching, and he's preaching these words. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, John the Baptist did not say, you're going to be destroyed. You are all under judgment. Now, they were under judgment. They were. Because otherwise, why would he call them to repent? You only call someone to repent who is under judgment, who is walking in sin, who is disobeying God. Otherwise, you don't call them to repent. So here, John the Baptist is telling the people of God, the people of Israel at that time, the people of Judea, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you don't repent, it's implied, there will be judgment. God will come with his hand of judgment. But if you do repent, you are going to experience his favor. But Jonah's message is different from John. There is no repent. It's 40 days. It's over. 40 days your homes will be destroyed. 40 days your families will be gone. 40 days you will die. 40 days you're finished. Doom. Period. It was a harsh message. Very harsh. Now, it's not the first time we see a cryptic and hopeless message sent to the ungodly. We have the case of a man called Belshazzar. He is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon, the empire. And one day he does something really strange. You see, they had raised the temple to the ground and they had taken all the artifacts, the the gold and the silver and brought it to Babylon. And so he goes, take out the, the cups, take out the chalices, and let's drink wine and let's pay homage to our gods. These chalices of the Jerusalem temple that are in our possession now. Let's have fun. And he had his concubines and he had his nobles there and they were having a party and, and, uh, and a drunken orgy, if you would. And while they were doing this, worshiping their gods with these chalices from the temple. And all of a sudden, mysteriously, this hand appears on a wall and it wrote four words, mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. And he brings in his, uh, his um, magicians, his, his astrologers, his, his, his seers. He brings all the people that he knows best. He goes, tell me, what, it, what is this? And he's frightened. What is it? Nobody could read it. And finally, someone said, look, bring in Daniel. Daniel will tell you. And so Daniel's Invited in, and Daniel reads it. He goes, many, many means you've been found wanting, uh, or you've been, you've been weighed twice. You've been weighed, you've been weighed. You've been found wanting, and your kingdom is removed. That very night, he dies in his sleep. The Medo-Persians take over, and, and they become the new empire. And, and there was a cryptic message. You're finished. You're doomed. You're dead. That was the message. Uh, it's another cryptic message here. And it required boldness. We have a message that's very unusual. And our message of the gospel is also very unusual, and not only because it's cryptic, but it, it grates against the message of inclusion and diversity and equality of our modern day. It does. When we say to people, you either accept 
the fact that the gospel is the only way, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, or you are doomed. Well, that's kind of cryptic. That's kind of, it's bothersome. It's unattractive. And we need boldness to preach that gospel. If we don't have boldness, you can't preach it. We prefer to keep the gospel to ourselves. That's safer, and that is less disturbing for us, but we can't. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of this world, and we need to preach. We need to make it known. We need to tell others. I think of Paul. I've often read these words to myself, and I said, Lord, grant me the grace to be like this. Paul is writing from prison, and he, asks, he has a prayer request, and he, he tells the church of Ephesus, the, the Ephesians, to pray for him. Right? He speaks about the, the, the armor in chapter 6, and then he speaks about prayer, all kinds of prayer. And then he, he ends this way. This is how he ends, and pray in my behalf. Now, you would think someone in prison would want what kind of prayer? Pray that I can get out. That would be, make more sense, right? Or, or pray that they would not mistreat me. Pray that I could get maybe some food, a blanket, some comfort, something. Pray that I don't have to suffer anymore. Pray for me. That's not Paul's request. Pray that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. He goes, I want to talk. Because I can be intimidated to be silent. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains. I'm in prison. And prison is rough. And I have this temptation to stay quiet. That's what he's saying here. He's being vulnerable. He is being open. Pray for me. That in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly. Says it again. Uses that word, boldly. As I ought to speak. He goes, I don't want to become silent. I don't want to become just like everyone else. I want to be bold even though I'm in chains even though I'm in prison. Now, Paul was in chains, why? Well, we know why, because he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that there is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. He was preaching the gospel. That's why he was in, pray, in prison. Had he just preached that Jesus was a good man, that he was a prophet, that he came to, do, to teach us a better way, he would never have ended up in prison. But he preached that Jesus is the only Savior, the only way to heaven through his death and resurrection. Someone might have said to him, Paul, just calm down. You don't have to be this bold. You don't have to be this controversial. You could just try to fit the message with the ambiance. Somehow find it a synergy between what is happening around you and your message. Make it work. Make it work. There's no making it work. There is no making it work today. Because whatever's around the gospel is darkness. The light is in the gospel. That's how do you make darkness and light work? It just doesn't happen. Paul's answer would be, I want to be even more bold in preaching the gospel. Pray that I may make it more clear. Make it known more clearly and boldly without any fear. I don't want the prospect of death 
or the idea that I may suffer more to block me, to paralyze me, to keep me back. I want to make the gospel known whatever the cost. Now, why did he think this way? Why did Paul behave this way? What motivated him? What was his paradigm? What? I think Romans 8, 18 tells us why. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Yes, there's sufferings associated with being a Christian. Yes, there is a measure of pain that comes along with it. And Paul and Christ tells us, rejoice if you suffer for my name's sake. But those sufferings, Paul says, Jesus never said this, but Paul says this. Those sufferings that we have now that come along with our walk cannot be compared with the glory that will be revealed when we are with him. We're going to look back at that suffering that we endured, the hardships that we had to face because of being bold, because of being Christians in a dark environment, in a dark world, and we're going to look at that pain, we're going to look at the sufferings that we endured today, and we're going to say to ourselves, that's nothing compared to what we have here. It's like a mother who holds her child after labor, after painfully bringing forth that child out of her womb, she looks at the child and she forgets her pain. We will look at the glory that will be ours when we are in the presence of God. We will forget the pain. But today, the enemy uses every tactic possible to keep the church silent, to keep us quiet. You may lose your job. You may not get that promotion. You're going to lose her as a friend. Your neighbors are going to criticize you. They'll make fun of you. Do you want them to know that you're weird? Do you actually want to tell them that you believe that Jesus died for you? The message is unusual. It's an unusual message. Paul said, I'm willing to pay that price. Oh, that God would grant us boldness. I think of the apostles. They were eager when Jesus rose. They would say, let's go out. Let's tell them. Let's all tell them. You're the Messiah. You're the one. Let's just go tell him. Jesus, no, 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 not yet. Go to Jerusalem and just wait. Go there and just wait for the fulfillment of the promise. And then you will be my witnesses. And the word for witnesses there is the word martyrs. You will be my martyrs. My martyrs. You're going to be willing to die for me. Once you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be willing to die. I've seen um, people who, who have very little schooling, very little knowledge of the language they spoke of. They barely knew how to read. But they were filled with the Spirit and they became bold. And they preached Christ. And they weren't silent. I've met such people. And they were willing to pay the price to go to an environment that was foreign to them, to go to a person that was not someone that they be, had been their friend, and, but they were trying to build a friendship, and they would just share the gospel but boldly with their poor language, with their, with their little understanding of the Bible. They had been filled with the Spirit, and they had come to know Christ as Savior, and they saw themselves as justified by faith, and they preached that, and they shared that boldly. I think we need a fresh 
touch of the Lord. Because if we don't preach the gospel at a time like this, when darkness prevails in such unique ways, that ways that we have never experienced prior to this, I mean, there's always been darkness. But how society today has made what is, was right one time wrong and what was wrong at one time, it's now right. How, is, how it's come to this point. It's come to a head. And the church needs to be bold. May the Lord give us grace. May the words of Paul that he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, when he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about. He goes, that's our, that's our privilege. I'm not going to say, wow, I'm better than others because I preach the gospel. No, he goes, I have nothing to boast about. For I am under compulsion. Jonah was under compulsion. We are under compulsion. That is our calling, church. That's why the Lord leads us here after he saves us. He leads us here to make the gospel known. I'm under compulsion. For woe to me, in other words, there's judgment if I do not preach the gospel. If I hide the gospel, if I keep quiet, if for whatever reason I choose to say nothing, woe is me. Woe. There's a judgment there. That's what Paul is saying. Now, you may say, but will I be judged like Paul would have been judged? Not necessarily. Too much is given, much is required. But every one of us has been given something. Jonah had been given the message. You go, it's cryptic, it's one of doom. I want you to preach it. Jonah had to have a second touch, and he finally goes, and he is bold. He preaches that message. Forty days and you'll be judged. That was the message. We have an even greater message. It is not one of doom like Jonah's. It is one that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is by grace that you're saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the message that we have. It is the message of the cross. And we have to give it. We have to share it. And may the Lord give us grace not to keep it to ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Jonah and how it speaks to us and how it reminds us that we too have been given this great mandate. Not because we're prophets, not because we are learned men, but because we are the church in this world. We are your iglesia, your people called out of darkness we are called and commanded to make known the truth of the gospel. Lord, we think of the people that we have shared the gospel with and who currently ridicule us and make fun of us. They may be relatives, they may be friends or fellow workers. And that may at times discourage us from continuing to share the gospel. Lord, grant us boldness. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to see that the sufferings of this time are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed when we are in your presence. We have such an amazing message. Help us, O oh Lord, to boast in the cross, to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Help me, help us all, until our dying breath, to make known this amazing truth. Thank you again for what you have done in our lives for how you use us, 
respectively in our different environments, in our workplace, in our family, with our loved ones, with our friends. Lord, may our lips not be shut. May our hearts not be closed. May our eyes weep for others until they come to know Christ as Savior. May we speak and speak boldly, I pray. And this I ask in the wonderful and glorious name of our Lord. Amen.